So uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Brandon is the the usual uh, preaching pastor here, but he is preaching at. Uh, so we we planted this church uh, about three years ago. So there was a church in the Madison area that uh, financially like supported us and everything. So um, yeah, so Brandon's preaching at that church this morning. So that's why I am here, and you all picked the wrong week to come. It was great. <laughs> All right, so um, so if this is your first time here, like Andy said, just really welcome. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming to check out River City this morning. So um, if you're interested in being uh, connected in a meaningful way, uh, just fill out one of those connection cards right in front of you. Then you can fill, you can fill that out, and then um, we won't sell your information. And then like we will, you can put it in the connection card box around the corner over there. So. Um, so here at River City, we've been preaching our way through Matthew this summer, and actually this year, and uh, that's in the New Testament. So this morning, I'm going to be preaching out of uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 12 through 15. So that picks up on our theme, which we've been going on, um, having going on, which is the upside-down kingdom um, that Jesus is telling his disciples about. So, so the counterintuitive thing about the kingdom of Jesus this morning in this, this morning's passage, passage is that we care enough about people to sometimes confront them. We care enough about people to sometimes confront them. And that is often completely upside down in comparison to how we often think about conflict and confrontation. So with that in mind, uh, I'm going to read a true story that's from a book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. Uh, So this is kind of lengthy, so thanks in advance for listening. So Ken Sandy says, so he says, many people do not like to confront others. This is especially true in modern society where the accepted rule is, you mind your business and I'll mind mine. Although we should be willing to overlook minor offenses, there are some problems that will only grow worse if they are not dealt with in a thoughtful, straightforward way. Janet a friend of mine who was a teacher in, a local school, in our local school district, recently learned this lesson when friction between her and Larry, a fellow teacher, got out of hand. Larry seemed irritated, seemed to, Larry seemed to irritate most of the teachers in the school. He continually made fun of people, often in embarrassing ways. He was quick, quick to criticize others, but he was easily offended when someone found fault with him. For some reason, he seemed to pick more on Janet than on anyone else. Whenever Janet walked into the teacher's lounge, Larry would look up and immediately say something sarcastic to or about her. So Janet found herself avoiding the lounge whenever she thought he might be there. Janet, who had been a Christian for several years, was especially troubled by the fact that Larry Larry openly claimed to be a Christian. She was particularly distressed by the effect that Larry's behavior was having on Carol, a fellow teacher to whom Janet had been witnessing to for a year. And when, she says witness, when he says witnessing there, it's just like sharing about who Jesus is. The more Carol was repelled by Larry's behavior, the less open she was to the gospel. If that's what it means to be a Christian, then no thanks, she said to another teacher one day. Janet had already confronted Larry several times about his behavior, but unfortunately, since she always did it without thinking, her words were usually angry and sarcastic. This only made Larry defensive and consistently led to an argument, after which both of them would walk away fuming. 
Finally, realizing the damage that was being done by their open conflict, Janet asked me for advice on how to deal with the situation. After discussing ways that she could please and honor the Lord through the situation, we considered where she had been at fault. Then we carefully planned out how she could talk with Larry in a more constructive way. We prayed that the Lord would give both Janet and Larry grace to resolve their differences in a way that would please and honor him. The next morning, Janet arrived at school early enough to talk with Larry before any of his students arrived. After telling him that she was concerned about the argument that they had had earlier in the week, she asked if there was like some time, if there was some time later in the day that to talk. With some hesitancy, he agreed to meet with her in a spare office at 3.30 after school. When they met in the office, Larry was obviously nervous and defensive. Janet put him at ease by explaining what she had hoped to accomplish through their meeting. She admitted that like she had behaved poorly and genuinely asked for his, his forgiveness for losing her temper and saying hurtful things to him. He said, that's okay. I know I can be sort of abrasive at times, too. Janet then graciously went on to explain to Larry how his conduct was affecting her, was affecting others, and was affecting their collective witness for the gospel in their workplace. Larry became defensive and tried to excuse his behavior. Janet then graciously explained to Larry some of the specific examples of hurtful words that he had said. She also appealed to him again with regard to his witness for the gospel. Instead of getting angry or harsh, she kept her voice under control and continued to express her concern for Larry and her desire to do what would please and honor the Lord. While they talked, she continued to pray silently that God would help Larry to see the truth about himself. After 45 minutes of uncomfortable conversation, Larry eventually began to soften. He admitted that his behavior was sinful and agreed that he needed to change. He went on to tell Janet that he's always had trouble getting along with people and that being sarcastic was often his way of getting attention. Janet responded with compassion and understanding and shared some similar struggles in her own life. They then discussed some of the ways that they could help each other overcome some of their harmful patterns in the workplace. They also agreed to meet once a week for five minutes of prayer before school and decided to ask another Christian teacher to join them. Finally, after recognizing how his behavior had affected Carol, Larry decided that he needed to go to her and ask for forgiveness. When he did so later that day, Carol was astonished. Her wonder increased over the next few weeks when she saw how much better Larry and Janet were getting along. As of this writing, Carol has not yet become a Christian, but her interest in talking about the gospel has noticeably increased. Janet's decision to care enough about her Christian brother to confront him in love not only won him over, but it also cleared the way for others at their workplace to know the unique peace that only comes through knowing Jesus. So in that story, Janet cared enough about Larry to confront him. And gospel people should never be eager for conflict and confrontation. 
But gospel people like us here at River City, like are part of an upside-down kingdom that we've been talking about here in Matthew 18. And that upside-down kingdom, in that upside-down kingdom, conflict and confrontation are sometimes part of living in his kingdom and being under the lordship of Jesus. And that's because you can't be involved in ministry or mission in any meaningful, significant way without eventually being hurt or disappointed in someone. You can't be involved in ministry or mission in any significant way without eventually being hurt or disappointed by someone. So therefore, when it comes to handling conflict and confrontation, the question is, will I take my orders from the teachings of Jesus and the cues from, my cues from his example? Or is it just too important for me to win at conflict? That I labor to protect my precious pride and my precious ego and my precious image. So with that being said, let's just read today's passage from Matthew 18, verses 12 through 15. Jesus says, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills to go to look for the one who, that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, He is happier about that one sheep than the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. And when he says little ones are there, he's just talking about Christians. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So just, just a few qualifiers before we pray and jump into talking about this passage. Um, first, when it comes to conflict and confrontation, um, the scope of this sermon is going to be limited to the verses right here because that's all we have time for. <laughs> because this passage, for example, doesn't, isn't applicable to every kind of conflict and confrontation. For example, if, something, if there's a horrendous crime that's been committed, you go to the police. You don't go and like, confront your brother and sister. And plus, if you read on past verse 15, like there's further layers of, of, and contours of conflict and confrontation that we just don't have time to unpack this morning. So with that being said, we're going to be talking about four things this morning. So that's why should we confront? It's when, when should we confront? It's how should we confront? Then we're just going to put it all together with some application. So let's pray. So God, um, thanks for um, thanks for writing this down. Thanks for talking to your disciples about this Jesus. Like, thanks that um, you aren't somebody who just died on a cross. Like, you came back alive and you are you are living right now. So we're just really thankful to be able to talk to you and just like we're really thankful that like you you gave um, this passage to the church just to show us about about your heart um, for your own glory, your heart for people and your heart, like, for people who are, like, straying from the flock. So, yeah, so we just pray that Holy Spirit, like, just in, in my own weakness, and um, I pray that you'll just, like, really speak through me, through your word. So we just really need you for that, and we love you. Amen. 
All right, so first one, so why should I confront? Why should I confront? So Brandon did a great job last week. He was actually preaching on this passage right here, but this really connects with verse 15 that we're going to be talking about this morning. So Brandon did a great job explaining the parable of the lost sheep last week. When I say the word parable, that just is, a parable is just a fancy word for a short story that makes a point. So Jesus tells this parable twice. Okay? So there's once he says it in Luke and once he says it here in Matthew. So when he tells this parable in Luke, he's emphasizing God's heart and his love and his care for unbelievers, people who aren't Christians. When he tells this parable in Matthew here, he's talking about like God's heart and care and love for people who are believers, people who are Christians. So the point that Jesus is trying to make is that strange sheep matter to God. And specifically here in Matthew, believers, believers who are straying, to strain from God matter to God. So by inference, strange sheep should matter to us here at River City. In the context of what Brandon was talking about last week, like these strained believers who Jesus is talking about are either ignorant or confused or spiritually weak or even rebellious. And Jesus says that we should go after these brothers and sisters in Christ with the goal of bringing them back from straying from the Father. That's the goal. Like, that's the why. So the confrontation in verse 15 isn't about you. It's about ultimately about others, and it's ultimately about God. So the confrontation in verse 15 is ultimately about loving your brother or sister with the love of the Father and pursuing them in the midst of even an awkward, uncomfortable conversation so that they can be brought back from straying from God and be brought back into the flock of the Father. That's the point, and that's the why of the confrontation in verse 15. And we also see this at the end of verse 15 when it says, if they listen to you, you have won them over. If they listen to you, you have won them over. And that's the win. See that word won right there? That's the win in biblical conflict and confrontation. It's not about winning the argument or proving that you were right all along or striving for every bit of justice that you can in that situation. Because in order to use conflict for Christ in kingdom work, winning stems from speaking the truth in love with a sensitivity that displays the authentic love and concern that you have for that straying believer. And, and let me also say, like, you don't need to be a Christian to realize that, like, oh, well, you know, conflict and confrontation, it's not about me, it's just about the other person. I mean, like, okay, you don't need to be a Christian to realize that. But, like, what takes it an extra step further, like, from a... The thing that makes what Jesus is saying uniquely Christian is that there is a heavenly Father, and there is a flock that the Father has, and there's a heart that the Father has for people who are straying, and then, like... And, like, the point is, like, to not just, like, "Eh, well, I really love the person, but, like, I love the person because there's the heart of the Father for that person, and we want to bring them back to the flock. That's the why, and that's what makes it uniquely Christian. So that's the why. Let's talk about the when. When should I confront? 
Again, these verses don't say everything the Bible has to say about conflict and confrontation. But these verses in particular are referring to a situation where the person being confronted is a brother or sister. Not your literal brother and sister, but your brother or sister in Christ. People who are part of the family of God. And verse 15 says, If your brother or sister sins... So this isn't about a preference. This ultimately isn't about a preference that you have, or this isn't something that man. You just really find a man. This really person is just really annoying me, and I just they just really need to be talked to. It's like this is pertaining specifically to a clear violation of God's revealed will in Scripture. So on this point um, about when to confront someone, so author author Ken Sandy. So he says the following. This will be on the screen behind me. If someone who professes to be a Christian is behaving in such a way that others are likely to think less of God, of the church, or of his word, it may be necessary to confront that person and urge him or her to change. And here comes the important caveat. This doesn't mean, however, that we should call attention to every minor offense for God himself is patient and forbearing with much of what we, what we do that's wrong, which is true. <laughs> but when someone's sin becomes open enough to obviously and significantly affect a Christian witness, what they mean by that is just like the credibility that we have of like how much of an alignment like we are with our profession of who Jesus is and like how we're like the, what characterizes us living our lives. So when someone's sin becomes open enough to obviously and significantly affect a Christian witness, a relationship, or if it's hurting others, then it probably needs to be confronted. So I hope we caught that. Like, so God is sometimes calling you to care enough to confront, but as a rule of thumb in life, like we need to take the God-centered approach just to relationships. Okay, so like... So one of the questions to ask is like, who is God and what is he like? So if he is patient and forbearing with us, then that's a reflection of what we are called to be characterized with extending grace to others, with patience and forbearance with other people. So this isn't about like this every minor nitpick offense that like we just, man, we just need to like talk about everything with everybody. Like, no, no, no. Like, Like when something is obvious and significant, like that's when like something needs to be confronted. So Sandy goes on to say the following. The Bible repeatedly warns us not to be eagerly looking for opportunities to point out the faults of others. In fact, anyone who is eager to go and show a brother or sister his sin is probably disqualified from doing so. Such eagerness is often a sign of pride and spiritual immaturity which ultimately cripples our ability to minister the gospel effectively to others. The best confronters are usually people who would prefer not to have to talk to someone about their sin, but who will do so out of obedience to God and their love for their brother or sister. So as we read Matthew 18 here, like, I just want us to be cool with like the guardrails <laughs> from this passage here. Because Jesus did not intend, verse 15, to be an endorsement for anyone to be a self-righteous, weirdo nitpick like in a community. So that being said, let's also collectively see that Jesus is saying to us in this passage 
the godly biblical confrontation is sometimes something that can and should be done out of love and compassion for straying sheep. And that's how part of that's part just part of how life works in God's kingdom. And there's father, and the reason why it works like that is because God, the Father, longs and just for those sheep that are straying from Him. And that's the when. So let's talk about the how. So how should we confront? Verse 15 says, Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. So this is the juncture in the conflict and confrontation where we're called to risk rejection and risk misunderstanding or even risk accelerating any kind of tension that's in that relationship there. But the ultimate question at that juncture is, will you give in to fear or will you trust Jesus enough to obey him? Will you trust that he knows this is how his kingdom works best? Again, back to our motives. Are we doing this out of a love for Jesus, a love for your brother or sister, or is there something else that's contaminating your motives in doing so? Notice verse 15 says that Jesus calls us to talk to the person just between the two of you. So if you're going to live out verse 15 in a meaningful way, then you probably need to stave off a very natural and instinctual a reaction, which is to go to someone else first for the purpose of venting and complaining. I know when, personally when I'm in situations like verse 15 is describing, especially when I'm the one that's been sinned against, it's often an intoxicating feeling to go to find out, go find a third party and present evidence against the person who has sinned against me. That's because, ultimately, I want that person to affirm my woundedness, and I want, that person to en- I want to enlist that person in the bearing of my hurt. And ultimately, what I want that person to do is I want that person to pat, figuratively pat me on the back and tell me, you were right. Who do they think they are? That's what I want. A story is told of a young man in the Middle Ages, which, by the way, I don't know if this story is true, so take this for what it's worth. A story is told of a young man during the Middle Ages who went to a monk saying, I've sinned by telling slanderous statements about someone. What should I do now? And the monk replied, go put a feather on every doorstep in town, which sounds like something weird that a monk would say. I don't know. And the young man did just that. Then he went back to the monk and asked if there was anything else he should do. And the monk said, yes, now go and pick up every one of those feathers. The young man couldn't believe it. He became angry and yelled, that's impossible. By now the wind will have have blown them all over town. And the monk said, so too have your slanderous words become impossible to retrieve. And let me just state the obvious. When, you know, with Matthew 18, like what Jesus is talking about right there, of course there's nothing wrong 
with wisely and biblically seeking out a trusted friend or your spouse. Hopefully your spouse is a trusted friend, you know. Like, for, adv- for the purpose of advice or counsel or just non-gossipy prayer. Like, of course. I mean, like, if that's your motive, like, of course that's a good thing. But, like, those caveats aside right there, and those are legit caveats, like, part of the reason why Jesus says to go to to go talk to your straying brother or sister just between the two of you is to put healthy guardrails on the community of the local church in addition to treating your brother or sister with dignity and respect. Because sometimes in God's sovereignty, those feathers that we send flying around, like we don't end, like those feathers that we send out flying around, I mean like sometimes in God's sovereignty, like, they don't end up undermining, like, the restoration process and, like, your brother or sister that's straying, like, you know, we aren't, those feathers don't end up undermining, like, the process of that. On the other hand, sometimes, man, we just end up reaping what we sow and, like, those feathers that get flying around, it's like, man, they really do undermine the process of, like, our brother or sister coming back to the flock. So we talked about the why, we talked about the when, we talked about the how move on to point number four, and that's just putting it all together. So, so there's this book um, that I read um, early 2000s. Um, it's by this, this book by this guy named David Augsburger called Caring Enough to Confront. So you don't have to read the book. I'll tell you the whole premise of it right here. All right. So the premise of the book is that um, often when we think of the word caring, like, oh, caring, that's a good word. And then, like, we hear the word confronting, I'm like, Oh, confronting. That's a bad word. Okay? So, like, you know how people, like, say the word ginormous? That's not a real word. Maybe it's in the dictionary now. Uh, you just made that up. Giant, norm, enormous. Okay, so, like, so Augsburger in his book, he just makes up his own word. Because when you're an author, you can do that. Okay? So, like, he just takes caring and confronting, and then he just, like, puts them together, and he makes up a new word called carefronting. Okay? Doesn't that sound dorky and weird? It is. Because sometimes in educational theory, you need to make something sound a little dorky in order to have people remember it. Okay? So carefronting. And his point is that, like, when you, like, in Matthew 18, Jesus brings together caring and confronting and brings them together in, like, what God puts together. Let's not try to separate those things. Okay? So, so, um, yeah. So the point of carefronting is that you're not just confronting someone you're caring enough to about someone to confront them you're care fronting them so sometimes becky my wife she's like sometimes i'll be talking to her and she's like baby are you care fronting me i'm like yeah <laughs> that's right i didn't know i was that transparent there anyway so augsburger has a chart uh about care fronting in his book based on matthew 18 so um let's pretend i have a laser pointer here all right so 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 if you're like, so pretend there's arrows like at the bottom here or like at the end of here. So like if you have a high love for straying, your straying brother or sister, the more high, the more love that you have for that person, like the more up, up there. There's a corresponding if you're like, there's a low love for your straying brother or sister, like, eh, just love them in this nominal, technical kind of way. Eh. So like, now if there's a high sense of sin's gravity in the situation, then there's like a correspondingly low sense of sin sin's gravity in the situation that's just getting at it's just like man like i know this like the struggle that they are doing having right now it's like man i that's affecting them it's affecting other stuff it's like man i can just really sense the gravity of like this and it's like 
Then on the other end of the spectrum, it's like, well, maybe it's affecting some, but NBD. So, so, so there's four quadrants because this is a matrix, not the matrix. It's a matrix. Sorry. So quadrant one. Let's talk about that. So quadrant run, like this is when you really love your strain brother or sister, but that doesn't mean you're actually going to do anything about it, okay? So talking to them about it, like anything, I mean, that's just too risky and it's too scary and it's too unpredictable. Like, I don't know, you know, okay. So quadrant two, this is when like you don't actually love your strain and brother and sister in any meaningful, significant way, but like, but you aren't going to confront them either, Okay, so if you're characterized by being apathetic or passive, I mean, this is the quadrant that you just kind of live in. So quadrant three, this is when uh, you don't love your strained brother or sister in any meaningful, significant way, but man, you'll gladly confront them about something because you just need to tell them how to get their crap together. And like, man, everybody would just live a much better life if they just listened to you. So Matthew 18 But Matthew 18 pushes us towards quadrant number four, and this is where care fronting happens with that. Because, and that's where, like, you care enough about the person to sometimes confront them. And this is where care fronting happens. So the question is what keeps you from moving into quadrant number four? What keeps you from moving into quadrant number four? So I'm just going to list off a few things um, that often keep us from moving into quadrant number four. Like if um, some of them may relate to you, some of them being like, ah, I don't even understand that. I don't know. So, so um, number one, so like is, is it that you find your identity in the approval you receive from the person that's straying? Like you love that person to death, but the reason why talking to them about it tends to paralyze you is because if they don't respond well, then they may not like you, and that may really affect the relationship, and that is just not something that you can ever put to risk. And if that's you, like the remedy to that is to believe the gospel and to find your identity in Christ, whereby putting your faith in Jesus means that all the approval that Jesus earned from the Father in his perfect sinless life, when we put our faith in Jesus, all that approval that Jesus won from the Father through his perfect sinless life gets transferred onto us, and it's given to us as a gift. So we, because of that, we have all the approval that we need. So what that means is that if you have a conversation with someone who's straying, your ultimate sense of approval and acceptance isn't on the chopping block because you've already been perfectly and fully been fully accepted by your heavenly father through having faith in Jesus. Like some of you need to believe that if you're going to move into quadrant number four. Or is it that you find your identity in comfort whereby you just really aren't interested in going out of your way and doing something uncomfortable like talking to someone about a specific area of their life where they may be strained from Jesus. Like, you're cool with just, like, staying in your own lane and, like, man, if there's somebody else that can do that for me, maybe, like, someone that we, you know, just whoever else it is, it's like, let's have somebody else do it. And if that's you, the remedy to that is to believe the gospel and to find your identity in Christ. Because if, if you seek your comfort 
first and foremost from God himself and like, man, he is where my comfort comes from. If that's where you go ultimately for your comfort, then um, what happens over time is that you stop being so desperate to find your comfort from other things. And that's a recipe over time for being able to do some, sometimes do hard things that are outside your comfort zone like having a challenging conversation with a brother or sister that's straying. That's how believing the gospel rescues you from the slavery of your own comfort zone. And, and make no mistake about it, your comfort zone is a really bad master, and you can't serve two masters. Jesus is your only master that you're being called to serve. That's how believing the, God, that like, believing the gospel rescues that, puts you into quadrant number four with that. Or is it that you find your identity in having power and influence over, over people? And maybe you don't like the word power. Maybe that, like, eh, offends your sensibilities. Maybe let's talk about influence then. Okay. So you like, you just really love having influence over people. And, like, oh, man, that's just, like, maybe you love that person in some technical or nominal way. But when it comes down to it, you just really don't mind having the privilege of telling people how they can get their life together. You know? So... And the remedy to that is, I mean, if that's you, like the remedy to that is to reject the lie that says people are at their best when you're the one telling them what to do. Because the gospel tells us quite the opposite, doesn't it? Because the gospel tells us that people are at their best when they're listening to Jesus, not necessarily to you. God may use you in one way or another to bring someone back who's strained from their heavenly father, but that is a far cry from the, from the lie that says like, oh, God just really, need, I don't know what God would do without you. It's like if he didn't have you out there to like be telling people what to do. Gosh. It's like you need to reject that lie and believe the gospel if you're going to move into quadrant number four. Or is it that you find your identity in control? Whereby if someone is straying, like, they just really need to be talked to because their struggles are just really affecting your tidy, organized, and planned little world that you live in, okay? Or maybe you just don't want to talk to them because the outcome and the variables are just way too unpredictable and you can't control how that person will respond or how they'll perceive you in the end. Or, man, you just can't control if you're just going to get all your words precisely right and exact. And again... Like, if that's you, like, the remedy to that is to believe the gospel and to find your identity in Christ, whereby you're being invited into believing that God is good and sovereign and in control, even when situations are uncomfortable, unpredictable, or they just don't turn out the way that you expect them to. Like, for example, like, so Jesus died on a Friday, and he rose from the dead on a Sunday and there was nothing going on on Saturday. (laughs) So that's why the disciples just seemed so hopeless and just like, man, like, and defeated on Saturday. But the thing was, like, God, on Saturday right there, God was still in control and he had an operational plan in place on Saturday. The disciples just didn't realize what it was until Sunday. And sometimes when we live in quadrant number four, it can just sometimes just feel like we're living on Saturday, you know? But because we believe the gospel is true, we can trust Jesus to live in quadrant number four 
because he's in control and at work there, even if we can't clearly see or understand how he is. So here's the questions I'm inviting you to consider as you, as you take communion this morning. So they'll be up on the screen. So what's, what's your default quadrant and why? What's your default quadrant and why? What lies do you need to reject in order to move into quadrant number four? When, what truths of the gospel do you need to believe in order to move into quadrant number four? What lies do you need to reject and what truths of the gospel do you need to believe in order to move into quadrant four? So if you belong to Jesus and you're following him, like he's inviting you into that quadrant four. Like he's inviting you to respond to him. And that's one of the reasons why we do communion every week here after the sermon, because the flow of the gospel is God takes initiative towards us and then we respond. When God takes initiative to us in his word, like we're being invited to respond to him, to surrender to him, and just wholeheartedly submit ourselves to him. And in this passage here in Matthew 18, what that looks like is to care enough about our brothers and sisters who are straying to sometimes confront them for the purpose of bringing them back to the Father's flock. Like, he's inviting you into that. Now, in, and let me point out one other thing. So, you notice how Jesus is talking about um, how he's talking to people who are going to be bringing back the straying sheep? Now, this morning, like, you might be the straying sheep. And... If that's you, like, you also need to hear the invitation of the Father in this passage that, like, the Father longs for you to come back. So how are you going to respond to him? If you belong to Jesus this morning, like, we invite you to take communion. So you don't need to be a member here or to call this church your home church. Like, you just need to belong to Jesus. So the bread, that symbolizes his body. The drink represents his blood. And, man, those things were broken and shed for you. Those things were costly, and he loved you enough to bring you back to do that. So as you take communion this morning, like, I just really encourage you to like, ask Jesus about like, what lies you need to reject in order to live in line with Matthew 18. And don't stop there. Ask him like, what truths of the gospel you need to believe. Because all of our spiritual growth ultimately comes down to the basics of, of repenting and believing the gospel. And if you're, you're the ones that's, that's straying from him, like we invite you to, to surrender to him, to put your faith in him, and just ask him to be the leader of your whole life. And, just, and then in response to that, like go back and take communion for yourself. So there's two communion stations in the back. You take the bread, you dip it in the juice, and you take communion that way. So the worship team is going to be up here like playing three songs. You can go up and take communion on your own anytime during those three songs whenever you're ready. So let's pray. So God, really thankful that, um, yeah, just like what I was talking to you before about like that you gave um, like Matthew 18 to us, that like you talked to your disciples about that. We get to, we get to listen in <laughs> on that conversation from a distance. Um, here, but it's still so applicable. So thanks so much for your word just being really timeless um, and timely. And we just really ask you that, like, um, yeah, that you'll just really show us, like, the ways that we need to respond to you. And I pray that, like, we'll just eagerly and joyfully, like, respond to you with that. Yeah, so thanks so much for you, and we love you. Amen.